Welcome back. I'm Kim Bailey. She's Fuliana Osborne and this is Inside Exec. Today we have another of our international guests and this is Alexander Lowry. So hello, Alexander. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Now, do we call you Alexander? Uh, that's what I tend to go by, but I've been called all sorts of names. <laughs> I think we'll stick with Alexander then. <laughs> <laughs> so, Alexander, you're currently very involved in the education field. Would you like to share with us the journey that has brought you to that point? Sure, and I should say that I never expected this twist and turn. So, for me, when I finished undergraduate or university, as you guys would call it, I went off and started my management consulting career, and I did that for a dozen years. Uh, based out of a combination of New York and London, working with executives around the world, lots of travel in different industries, solving different problems. Absolutely loved it, but I had always anticipated being on Wall Street at some point, and I had that itch that I wanted to scratch for my career. So I went to business school and got my MBA from Wharton. From there, transitioned to working at J.P. Morgan. I was there about four and a half years. But before an opportunity came up or something that had been on my heart, and if we go back about 10 years ago, we had what we call in America the Great Recession, which a lot of people thought was going to be the end of the world. Mm. And we can argue about exactly what caused it. But I think a lot of people would say it was some unethical decision making, some bad practices. And an opportunity came up at Gordon College to build and launch a one-year master's in financial analysis program. We can talk more about this, but it's basically a better, faster, more affordable version of an MBA mm. focused on producing ethical students and make a difference in that space. And I thought this is exactly what my time in town should be used for. So I've transitioned over and I'm both a professor teaching in the program and also the director running the program. And you're finding that it's fulfilling? You know, in so many ways that I hadn't anticipated. One way that if my wife were on the show, she would say, instead of working 100 hours a week in New York <laughs> City at a bank, I actually get home to see my family and uh, usually get to have breakfast and dinner with them. That's right. fabulous. You know, to have something that has given you that broad view of education and industry, but to have the balance is very impressive. Well done. And, <laughs> and equally as important is what you're doing with enlightening people how to behave in the workforce. That's excellent. But we like to think that we're helping the students go from the classroom to the boardroom, preparing them not just for their first job, but for their last job, to go out there and make a difference, and then to pay it forward and carve the way for people to follow after them. And the reality is, I think businesses can do well while doing good. We don't have to be greedy. We can all be giving back while we're still doing well. There's plenty out there to all share. Excellent. You've probably covered the first of the questions that we wanted to talk to you about, about why the move. But I'm, I'm interested in just in hearing the, those ideas that you've expressed, that the age group that's coming through your course now, is that what you expected? I think whenever you launch a product and whatever your business, and no matter how much research you've done, there are always going to be some surprises. Uh, so, for example, I've been a little surprised at some of the segments that were attracted to our product that I did not anticipate. For example, I didn't assume any actuarial science type students would see this as a draw, but they have. Mm. Uh, I've been surprised how many of the accounting type students see this as a draw. And I guess if I put myself in their shoes, you can go get a master's in accounting or taxation, but then you really specialize to the point where if you ever want to change later, you're probably at a disadvantage. Mm. Where if you broaden yourself out and 
get our sort of master's in finance program, you could change down the line and be a controller, CFO, it really opens up. And we had expected to be more of a specialized niche program. We are finding that it's attractive to so many different people, which is exciting. Uh, I guess it's a good perspective that have shifted the other way. And are you getting people who don't have a financial background? Yes, we are. So that has also been a surprise for me. And I guess we're seeing a lot of people that, uh, similar to going to an MBA and doing a career change, they might have been say, consulting like switching over to finance. We've actually had some others that might have been liberal arts students, undergrad, and you know, in all fairness, I was a history major in undergrad, but had been sort of out of the, the math, accounting, economics, finance path, and would like to switch over and realize I studied what I was passionate about in undergrad, but now I want to be more practical and make a difference in the world, and I need an opportunity to get a job in that space. I need this credential going forward. Mm. But you can still combine that with passion by the sound of it. To be honest, I would actually say when someone is hiring, the only two things that matter are do they have intelligence and passion. Because if they're smart and their desire to do it is relentless, I can train them to do anything, I firmly believe. And I believe instead most hiring managers want someone who's been there and done it before, sort of plug and play. You can sit down at the seat from day one. But I'd argue that's not a good hire because they're going to get bored. No one wants to do the same thing forever. Can you tell me what was the biggest change that you had to make, apart from the, the number of hours that you were working, the, big, the biggest change that you felt you had to make in going from that corporate environment to an educational environment? Well, there's probably two changes. One I anticipated and the other was surprised to me the degree that it was. And the first was bringing my business mindset, sort of my management consulting background where I'm always thinking of there a better, faster, more affordable solution to this. Uh, could we do the systems and processes in a better way? Just make the, the world better, bringing that business mindset into education. And there's a reason that a lot of really smart people in the IV tower and need them as educators. But I would argue um, not even nonprofits need to be run in, to some degree like a profit business. Yes. Nonprofit yes. is not run like a business, it will not be in business for very long, if that mm, makes sense. Yeah. So I, I anticipated needing that, but I guess I had not really fully understood the degree to which the nonprofit space, particularly education, runs so much slower and the pace of change is very, very small. And you know, JP Morgan for me by comparison, you're talking about a quarter of a million people. So that's a battleship that does not turn mm. on a dime. <laughs> yeah. And I have now realized the, the education industry as a whole really does not turn. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I wonder what sort of technology you're using in the education space to to help the students, or is it more about face-to-face -face and people interaction? That's a great question, and I think we're seeing the education space begin to change, and as I just implied, it's a slow, yeah. slow pace of change, but the reality is that the technology is such, if you look at what they're doing in the corporate world today, it's incredible. That we can have a conversation now as if we were sitting in the same room together from literally the other side of the world. And you could do that with a phone line, you could do it with video. There's no reason that someone who is sitting in Kuala Lumpur or Nairobi couldn't be in our classroom with us. The technology is so incredible. And Gordon College is just about to roll out you know, sometime between this semester and next semester the opportunity for us to do that face-to-face -face with students around the world because we want to bring the great education we have to them. And, uh, you know, I think we've mostly found, when, even when we're hiring these days, the younger generation wants convenience. They want what they want now. That's what they've been used to as consumers. So we need to change our educational model. And I am sort of piloting a new way for Gordon College to do that. And I think that is indicative of what the industry is slowly beginning to do. So we mm -hmm. probably saw 
for the last 10 to 15 years, more schools building more campuses elsewhere around the world. That's incredibly expensive. These mm-hmm. days, instead of paying money to build a new dorm, why don't you just build a new facility with top-notch education and you can bring in more students than you could possibly imagine? Yes. It seems to me that you introduced a paradigm shift in terms of thinking about how an MBA or an MBA equivalent could be awarded, and now it's another paradigm shift in the actual physicality of, of that educational process. So how do you – what's the next thing? Where are you going to move on to next? Well, I, I, that's very kind of you to say, and I, I think we're still struggling to get both of those through, not only where I am in my program at my university, but also the entire industry. And the way that I tend to think about it is you know, the U.S. has most of the best-ranked MBAs. There are clearly you know, a top five elsewhere in the world that we can name, but a lot of the great schools are here. People come from around the world to go here, but yeah. they are incredibly expensive. So I went to work. And the average MBA in the U.S. two-year program is about 140,000 U.S. dollars, and then the top programs like Harvard and Wharton are close to about 200,000. That's a lot of money, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. doesn't even account the salary you haven't taken by being out of work for a couple of years. So yes. the opportunity cost is immense. And part of my thought process was, we can certainly do a lot of the same materials if you are willing to change your approach. So the typical MBA is you go into first year, you have no idea, maybe you have an idea, but you don't really know what you want to do. You're doing a lot of general classes, a little bit of strategy, marketing, accounting, operations, finance. You do a summer internship, you realize, you know what, I do want to be marketing, or I do want to be finance, or whatever it is you study. You come back and you specialize your second year. My thought press was, if you know what you want to specialize in, let's just take that second year experience. We can do it half the time, and we do it for a quarter of the price because we feel like people have a burdensome amount of debt from undergrad already, mm-hmm. and therefore we can change the model. Um, I think that's slowly taking hold. We have seen the MBA applications fall off the cliff over the last five years mm-hmm. because the younger generation is saying, actually, this is not I've got a lot of debt already. Mm-hmm. And I think this is just taking hold. And then if you take the education stuff on top of that, you're seeing sort of a paradigm shift within the industry. You're seeing more schools saying, um, I will actually close my traditional two-year MBA and move it entirely online, yeah. which is a fascinating shift because now they're sort of cannibalizing their own business. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure anybody knows exactly where it's going to go yet, but it's fun watching the changes happen. And in terms of industry, do you see that industry is accepting of the, the variety of qualifications that are coming out at that level now? a wonderful question and a delightful one that you're asking. So I will I will geek out for a minute on U.S. law here. Yeah. <laughs> in, in America, you are legally allowed to discriminate on whether someone has a university degree or not. Yeah. You can literally have a checkbox on your application, do you have a four-year degree? And then we can argue about whether that actually is worth a lot, whether that matters, but let's put that aside for a moment. Mm-hmm. So if someone says no, you're allowed to disqualify them. You cannot do that with an advanced degree, but employers basically know this is a great way to screen. And so, like, for example, J.P. Morgan's application, if you want a a mid-level role, certainly a senior-level role, it says advanced degree strongly preferred. And you might as well triple underline that. If you don't have it, the robot's not going to let you through. It's as simple Mm -hmm. as that for the first screen. Now, it doesn't care what your advanced degree box check is. You could have a master's in social work, public health, MBA, and to some extent, they're all the same. That don't go to grad school to check a box. That's a bad idea. But my point is, if part of what you're doing is going to change careers and get a job, and part of it is to check the box, 
would you check the box in a better way? I would argue yes. Mm. And you know, if you can argue, you're still going to get the same knowledge because, frankly, all of the programs are using the same textbooks for the most yes. part wherever you go. And if you're going to get a great network out of it, maybe there's a better way to do it. Right. Longer term, would you look for industry partners for the work that you're doing? Absolutely. So from our perspective, we're getting a lot of great feedback on our students because our model is built on building an ethics into every class we run. And I'll just give you an interesting parallel. So when I was at Wharton, I talked about in your first year, you take all of those different subjects. We had one class on ethics. Mm -hmm. And we had the professor who'd been teaching there at Wharton for 40 years. And he walked into the first class. We've got 90 students chattering away. He walks down to the front of the room and throws this huge meal of full oats down on the table. It makes a loud thud, and everybody stops talking. They look at him. He points to this folder, and he said, these are all of my students from Wharton over the last 40 years who've gone to jail. And I'd like to not add to it this semester. <laughs> now, we, we, can, we can rationalize that a little bit, right? Because Wharton is the world's biggest business school. It's got uber type A capitalists who push the envelope. But that doesn't really explain what it is. So I thought there's got to be a better model. Instead of having a class on ethics, you, know, you check the box. How about ethics is everything, all of your classes, because this is the right way to do business. So we are finding businesses who are going, we like what you're doing. This is an approach of we would like to be hiring people. So I think that's going to naturally come as just, you know, we're only in year two, starting year two of the program. As we grow and develop and improve our reputation, I think that will snowball. Yeah, that's, that's, it's really encouraging to hear. At this point, we're going to take a break in our discussion with Alexander. In part two of our discussion, we'll continue looking at the ways that changes are happening in higher education and how they affect the business and corporate world. But for now, I'm Kim Bailey, she's Fuliana Osborne, and this is Inside Exec. <laughs>